Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you for the time of rest that you provide us. It is uh, fitting that we take a season of that to reflect and call upon you and just get clarity of mind. And I pray we'd all be able to do that. We pray also, Lord, for the upcoming trips, that your hand would be upon them, that you would provide travel mercies, there would be no issues. And for the message today, Lord, your word, Hebrews chapter 12, which you desired for the Jews to know and understand how your plan has unfolded. We pray that you would bless your word, install it in our hearts, that we might be able to recall it according to the whims of your Holy Spirit. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to be built up in the most holy faith that we may be able to share our knowledge with others and that they might be saved. In Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews chapter 12. This is classic Pauline authorship. Uh, Of course, some people still debate whether or not it's the Apostle Paul or somebody else who wrote it. But I explained that when we started in Hebrews chapter 1. But Paul starts out in Hebrews and he talks about the son, that Jesus Christ and who is he? And he makes this distinction going through verse eight, that he is not an angel. And then we also see that the Hebrews are in danger of not entering into their rest because they want to continue with the Old Testament sacrifices. And the author of this epistle said, no, that's not the way to go. And then there was the danger of not maturing in Christ, not going on in the faith. And God let us know that that's not the way to go. The way of stagnation is the way of damnation, so to speak. That if, if you are not willing to put forth the effort, really, are, are you even a believer? Are you even a disciple? And remember, I talked about the word disciple is used 243 times in the New Testament. But the word Christian is less than a handful of times that it's used. And so God calls us to be disciples. He calls us to be involved in his word, to be involved in fellowship, the apostles' doctrine, prayer, the breaking of bread, all of those things. And he expects that of us as disciples. And so he is encouraging all the way through the book of Hebrews, those Hebrews to avoid the pitfalls of just complacency, not growing in Christ, just outright denying him and just saying, I'm not going to participate. And in chapter 12, we're going to see that final warning here. In verse one, it says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Right before this, he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, he's referring to the previous chapter, at least our chapter that we have, chapter 11, where it's referring to Abel, Enoch, Noah, Adam, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Israel, who is... Jacob, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, Daniel, or David, Samuel, and the prophets. He's saying, because these guys have been such an example and you're surrounded by these witnesses, don't lose heart and throw off everything that hinders. Now, what is there in this life that can hinder us from being a witness? And that's what he's calling us to be here is a witness. What things entangle us? I mean, look at our country. We are so prosperous. We have so much. We have all knowing Google in our hands. We're walking around. Do you know the iPhone is only 11 years old? 
It, it is just a baby. And look at the technology that we have. There is more technology in the iPhone than was in the Apollo 11 spacecraft that took the people to the moon. They had all these switches and buttons and things that they had to push manually. And look at our iPhone. It will do... It, my phone, I can get an app to take my heartbeat did you know that? I just stick my finger up to the little sensor there on the light and it'll take my heartbeat and it'll tell me if I'm alive or not. Those types of things exist and they never existed before. And it has also turned into a glucose meter. You can take your phone and get this attachment and have a glucose meter on your phone. I mean, it is all right there. You have any question whatsoever? Patty and I were doing this along our trips because <clears throat> we went to Idaho and we came down through Utah and we saw the Mormon temples there not the one specifically in Utah we had been to that one before but you were kind of reviewing and I, I was driving you know and I'm looking at my Google Maps on the side where am I going here I need to go this direction and all of a sudden we see this Mormon temple and I said you know what Patty we need to review what the Mormons believe and what they don't believe and she let me get right on that. And we punched in this thing and then we looked at it from the view of what the Mormons believe and the view of those who weren't Mormons and what they said. We saw the differences between the two and we had all that on our phone right there. We didn't have to go to the Funkin Wagnalls up on the bookshelf and that Encyclopedia Britannica, all of that to find out what was going on. I mean, it was all just right there. So we have this cloud of witnesses. We have these examples that are up there and we want to make sure that we are following through because of their example. Has there anybody, ever been anybody that has inspired you that has maybe been a teacher or somebody in the military or somebody who has done something that has just been passionate of what they're proposing to you. I had one particular person like that when I was uh, going to a junior college. I had this guy, his name was Mike Riddle. And Mike Riddle was a Vietnam vet and he came back for an, with an appreciation for life. And he taught botany. And I got into his botany class, and I thought, oh, well, I have to take the science requirement, botany. And by the time I was done, I was a landscaper. I mean, I, that guy, he just, I, well, I'd go in there, and my mouth would just be open every time he would speak because he was passionate about what he had. Now, are you passionate about Christ? You know that sometimes that passion, it can be a, a negative. You'll start talking about Christ, and go, talk to the hand, you know, don't even talk to me. But we have to have this passion. And this is what chapter 12 is about. Having this passion for Christ. Being able to sit at his feet and learn and have our mouths open. We will see we're supposed to worship God with respect and awe in this chapter. Where, you know, when songs are being sung, do you feel like you're filled with awe? Filled with something like bacon and eggs, but I don't know about awe, right? We're supposed to be filled with awe. We're with, wow, God, you're so good. I, I, I referred to Bryce and Zion Canyon. Those places, you know, we're driving like this. I'm driving, and I'm, I'm just looking up. My eyes are wide open, and, you know, Patty's looking out. She's turned to the side of her window, and she's looking out the window, you know, like this. Just, It's so awesome to see what God has created, and, you know, the world would say oh, it's just nat uh, natural processes that has had this happen out there. And it's not. God did all of this. And I was just awestruck at some of these things that we saw. But we are exhorted here to run the race. We are in a race. Now, what happens if you don't exercise and you go run a race? <laughs> Misery. 
just misery takes place. Once we did Yosemite with a group of kids, high schoolers, and my pastor went. And my pastor just decided, it's fine. I want to do it one time before I die. He's still alive. You know, he's doing good. But uh, he was terribly out of shape. And his sons had to carry his pack halfway. You know, it was just a, a terrible trip for him because it was so strenuous, 46 miles over six days. It wasn't easy. But we are called to run a race, not walk a race. We are called to run, get up some steam. We're supposed to throw off everything that hinders and sin. And this word, throw off everything that hinders, it's that thing which ambushes you or circles you or encircles you. So as you're running along, imagine a bunch of runners coming up and encircling you and trying to distract you, right? You're supposed to throw it off. In other words, it's kind of like how football used to be played. You stuck your hand out there like this. You had the football and you ran and you pushed anything to the side that was going to be in your way. This is with determination. So you have to run the race with determination. If there is no determination, there is no additional study. There is no desire to follow the things of the Lord. We're just doing Sunday and Wednesday nights. Then we're to run for distance without stopping. We're to run the race with perseverance. Now, you can tell when somebody gets tired, if they're out of shape, they stop and they walk for a little bit and they'll sit down and they'll take a drink of water and they'll get back up. That's not how we're supposed to run the race. It's not like we're supposed to just, I'm going to take a break now. Why? Because I want to. Why? And, and it's not like, for instance, we just left for 10 days and I came back. I never stopped walking with the Lord doing that. But some people will say, no, I'm, I'm, you know, I just need to take a break. There have been people in the past that have been here serving. And I remember one specific comment. And the comment was when they were going to leave, they said, yeah, we're just going to go get ministered to now instead of minister to others that is so contrary to what scripture says we are not to live a life that is pleasing to ourselves we are to consider others better than ourselves in philippians chapter 2 that whole chapter there or at least through verse 11 1 through 11 consider others better than ourselves is what we are exhorted to do so if we're saying you know i need to take a time and just get ministered to well, you get ministered to by ministering to others. The world would say you have to love yourself before you can love any others. Scripture says there has not yet been a man who does not love himself. And so it, it, it is this idea, the world wisdom and Scripture wisdom. Scripture wisdom says give yourself to Christ and he will empower you. Once you get the focus on yourself, you're done. I mean, then everything is about you or it's about me if our focus is on ourselves. We want to make sure this, our focus is on Christ, number one, and then on other people, how we might minister to them. And we're supposed to stay the course. We're not to veer off. You know, when I had the Google Maps going, I didn't say, well, let's take this little trick off this side here. No, I, I stayed where I was supposed to be going. I had a time limit of places that I had to go, and therefore I needed to stay the trek. I wasn't supposed to get off the trek. Otherwise, I'd still be gone, wandering around, not knowing where I was going. We have a destination. We know exactly where we are going. And so if we're running the race with perseverance, not stopping, not taking a break, staying the course, and, you know, when uh, ladies, remember when they used to 
do the childbirth classes. They probably still do. But when they do the childbirth classes, they would teach you about the he pant. He, 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 he. Like that when it starts to hurt. Yeah, some of you ladies are smiling. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And then when it gets really tough, you know, uh, the husband is supposed to take the tennis ball and rub it on your back to, re- to relieve the pain that's there. And then the wife say, don't touch me. You know, in, in the third phase of the pregnancy and giving the uh, birth to the child, you know, the woman turns to the man and says, you did this to me. You know, something like that. Well, <laughs> I won't tell you what my daughter said in the middle of giving birth to one of her children, but this, this idea that we are to fix our eyes in this birth process, you were supposed to, ladies, get a focal point, right? You're supposed to look at a dot and just... <gasps> You know, as you're breathing, have that focal point. Well, our focal point is who? It's Jesus Christ. He's our focal point. You keep looking at him no matter what's around you. You're bashing everything to the side. You're running the race with perseverance. You're not going to stop. That's what he's telling us here in the first couple of verses. That's how we're supposed to be running. Now, this time, or at this time, you're supposed to say, am I doing that? Am I running as fast as I can? Am I running? running in such a way that I love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. Am I getting distracted? You know, one of the things in the parable of the sower of the seed is the cares of this life distract people and they walk away from the faith. There should be nothing in this life that distracts us so much that we can't focus on Christ. We get our eyes off of Christ. And once we do that, eventually we get into trouble. So this endurance that we're supposed to have within us, this fortitude, this determination, this grit, this guts, guts, this courage, this strength, that's how we're supposed to do it. Remember what King David told his son Solomon when he became king? Now, this kind of applies to women, but he said, be a man. What's a man? Be responsible. Know what you're doing. Set out the course that lies ahead of you. Know exactly what is going to be accomplished when you get to the end. The same thing applies to both men and women. We're supposed to do this with endurance, fortitude, determination, forethought. All of those things are supposed to be out there. It's like we have to make a plan. If we don't have a plan, we have nowhere or no idea where we're going to go. And ultimately, Jesus, he is our example of this, running the race, and he was rewarded for what he did, just like we will be. Verse 3 says, Considered him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart in your struggle against sin. And I think this word sin here refers to the sinful men. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. In other words, the people that oppose you in your Christian walk, Have you given blood because they so oppose you that you have just been battered and beaten up literally? It hasn't been the case. Now, if you go over to Yemen, Saudi Arabia, it might be the case. But over here, it has not been the case that any of us have done this. And so when there are sinful people who oppose us, we're just to stay the course. Keep our eyes on Christ. We're to consider him what he did. Verse 5. Here we have the hardship and discipline. And you have forgotten that the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. In other words, these Hebrews are missing something and he's bringing them back to focus on it. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord's discipline The Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. 
For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And so these Jews, these Hebrews, the church was being persecuted. This is the beginning of the persecution here. And he encourages them to endure hardship as discipline. And we want to make sure, as we'll see here about bitterness, that we don't blame others for the trials that are in our life. God may be using them to shape us. You know that scripture that talks about iron sharpens iron, so as man sharpens man, iron sharpens iron. We sharpen each other, which means if there's iron on iron, what are you going to have? Sparks. Fire. Wearing. Chipping. You're going to have all of those things take place. And guess who gets to do it? Your fellow believers. And guess who really gets to do it? Those you are closest to, your own family members, they chop away at you and you don't like it. And Ever have a family argument? I know none of you argue in here, right? You've never had an argument with anybody in your family ever. You've never had an argument with anybody in church. And then we focus on that individual and say, you, you're the one. You made my life miss. Get rid of it. It is not the person. It is God who is doing it. All hardship we're to consider as discipline, which means we're supposed to have this internal focus. When a trial comes our way, what are we supposed to do? God, is there something that I'm not doing? Something that I did wrong? Something that I need to change? Why did this come in my life? God has a purpose for it. Remember Romans eight twenty eight. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And, and so if that's the case, even the worst things that happen to us are for a purpose. Now, it may be that you need some patience. Do you ever pray for patience? Go ahead. Just, Lord, I need patience. You know, if you pray for patience, or have you ever prayed for more faith? What happens if you pray for faith? You have a trial that makes you trust in God even more. And you, you probably end up saying, I don't want to pray for faith, and I don't want to pray for patience. Would you pray for the Lord's will? Well, yes, I'd pray for the Lord's will. Do you think the Lord wants you to have patience? Yes, I think the Lord wants me to have patience. Do you think you should pray, Lord, give me patience? No. You see, that's, that's how we operate. We don't want to sign up for what the Lord has. Not that we're praying for trials. He could just imbue us with these particular characteristics. But you know, if there is any other way for God to give us these characteristics in our lives, he would have done it. God is perfect. Everything that comes from God is good. It's a good gift. We just don't look at it as good. When you discipline your child, is it good that you discipline your child? Yes. Now, if you do it lovingly, that's really good. If you do it unlovingly, it's never good. When we went to this one uh, parenting seminar, and they were so flowery and so kind. And, and what he said... You never want to discipline your children when you're angry. One guy said, what would you like me to do? Wait till I'm happy? 
in turn and discipline my children when I come here, son. Yeah, then whack. You know, you give them a, a, a rod of correction to the seat of understanding when you're happy. You're going to send mixed signals. Of course, you can be angry, but sin not. You can tell your displeasure or express your displeasure to your children. That's okay. But we are God's children, and He loves us in spite of everything that we do. That's why He sent His Son for us. So there's so many valuable lessons that are hidden here. And again, I just want to overemphasize this discipline happens to us because the Father loves us. It's never pleasant, but we always want to ask God, what am I supposed to learn from this? Now, Scripture talks about us being disciplined, and when we're in a state of discipline or hardship or trial, we are weaker normally. Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. The world would say, Be strong. But the Lord says, No. Be weak, and then he will become powerful through you. Hebrews 5.8 says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Now wait, isn't Jesus God? He is God. Scripture tells us that. But he was perfected by what he suffered, perfected in his flesh. That's what it's talking about. He was God. He was not perfected as God. And so even Jesus had to go through this enduring trial of suffering in order to be perfected. Why do we think that we would escape that as well? Was Jesus willing to go through the suffering? He was. Can I get an amen to that? If he wasn't willing to do that, we wouldn't even be here. But he was willing. And so we have to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, according to the book of Romans. So hardship is a part of the normal Christian life. Some may experience very little hardship. Some may pay the ultimate price of giving their life. You know, in my line of work, I have worked for kings and I have worked for paupers. And some of these kings that are out there, they, they have everything. They've retired before age 50. One person I know has a 61-foot boat at their second home up in Canada. And they spend their life playing, but ministering to people at the same time. And I, sometimes I look at that and I go, God, why couldn't I have that? You know, my friend Bob Botsford, he, uh, we went to seminary together. He is the pastor of Horizon Christian Fellowship up in Rancho Santa Fe. And I think to myself, I get Lakeside, he gets Rancho Santa Fe. What's the deal with that? You know, it's because we're, it's where God called me. But we can look at that and say, well, how come? Why? We, we have to be satisfied with the lot that God has given us, whether it's great suffering or little suffering. Somebody who is in some foreign country that has nothing says, Bill gets called the lakeside and I get stuck down here, you know, in this particular country. See, it's, it's all relative, what is going on and and so we have to keep this in mind that some experiences have very little in the way of suffering some experiences have a tremendous burden suffering and people have given their lives for the sake of christ god cannot prepare us as i've said before for this life and the next without the hardship and discipline that come along with being a disciple and i'd like you to know this as well this teaching of hardship and discipline is contrary to the health wealth 
and prosperity doctrines and those who teach them. I don't know how much you have watched television and the pastors who come on television and they talk about one particular pastor. He said, why do I drive a Rolls Royce? Because God wants me to drive a Rolls Royce. Well, that may be true or it may be an actual judgment against him. He may consider it a blessing, but it may be an actual judgment. And was it Creflo Dollar that needed a multi-million dollar G4 jet to get around and didn't want to fly commercial? You know, in, in this idea that you can name it and claim it, the vernacular, sarcastic vernacular of the day is blab it and grab it, that, that you can just say, God, I know that you want me to be rich. Really? What does scripture say about us as Christians? It says, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Lord, I'm suffering with this Rolls Royce. I have to get it fixed. You know, you cannot claim health either. People will do that. They'll say, God wants you to be well. How do you know that? I thought that everybody is under a curse. We all get sick and die, right? We actually, in the beginning of this church, we had somebody who came to church and he was trying, he was going through the body and he was saying, you know, if you have enough faith, you don't have to die physically. Because of in the book of John, it says, Jesus is the resurrection and the life and he who believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And he was going around saying, do you believe this? You don't have to die physically. Are you kidding me? I mean, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I only know of what? Two people who haven't died. And Jesus wasn't one of them. One was Enoch. Who was the other one? Elijah. He was the other one. Those two didn't die. And so if God didn't want them to die and he translated them, transformed them, that's great. But everybody is under a curse. That is clearly false doctrine. And those people are coming out and saying, God wants you wealthy. He wants you healthy. And he wants you wise. Really? Is that what he, well, he does want us biblically wise, but not worldly wise. And if you're biblically wise, you're not going to buy into the wealth and the health thing. Now, if God blesses somebody with wealth, God bless them. You know, I am just so happy for those people that they're able to do that. And the ones that I know, some of the ones that I know that have been extremely wealthy, they have used it for the right purposes. And it's great. But normally the person with great wealth has a difficult time trusting in God because they trust in their wealth. And so we have to keep this in balance. Wealth is not bad. Health is not bad. Both can be good in this life. But both can also have us succumb to the ways of the world. And so remember, in our weakness, God is made strong. But God can use people from all socioeconomic backgrounds, all races, all creeds, all tribes, all countries. It doesn't matter. As long as the person's heart is given to the Lord and they're running out the race set before them. Now going on in verse 12. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Now three times in this chapter he says, therefore... Therefore, therefore, therefore. This is the second one here. He's saying, because of this, that's what therefore means, because of all these things, this is what you're supposed to do. And apparently from the text, we can glean that the Hebrews that he's 
writing to are weak in some area spiritually. And he's saying you need to be strong. How do you make level paths for your feet? Now, when Patty and I were on this hike, it was called Angel's Landing. And we had, it was a four-hour hike, two and a half miles up, two and a half miles back. It was in Zion National Park. And we're walking up these switchbacks. And we find out there's 21 switchbacks. And we get to the top, this light, nice little level area. And it was real easy to walk on. Walking up, it was a concrete path. Level paths for our feet. You know, level as far as flat. It wasn't level as going up, but it was flat and it was concreted. It, it was just wonderful, you know, walking up there and we got all to the top and we sat down, we looked over the side, 1,400 feet straight down. And you just go, this is really high. I took a picture of my hand looking over the edge with my phone like that. I was getting this feeling in my stomach. and I went, This is really high, but it's level back here. It's nice and level. Felt good. Then I told Patty, let's go around this corner. Some people are walking around there. So we walk around the corner and all of a sudden you look. And that's the end of the trail. It's up there. And there are chains. To get up there, you have to grab the chains because you're hanging over the edge going, okay. Patty's going, don't look down. Just keep on going up. And so you go up and then there's these huge rocks and you got to get down on your rear and slide down and then go up and and put your feet up high, huge steps, you know, 24 foot steps going up and holding onto the chain. And, and you're going, this is not very level. It was precarious. And then at the sign going up to the top of angels landing, it said six people have died going on this trip. And you see it right there before you go up. It's a dangerous trip. And God says, don't take that trail. Stay on the level ground. How do you stay on the level ground? You make a determination that God's word provides wisdom to make solid paths for your feet. If you don't have God's word, you're sliding down rocks, holding on to chains, going up. You could die. And that's what some people have had happen to them on this particular trail. And so God wants us to have these level paths for our feet. And you cannot get that through worldly wisdom. You can only get that through biblical wisdom. The author, as I just said, seems to be detecting a spiritual weakness in the lives of the Hebrews that he's writing to. And that spiritual weakness, I mean, if you have spiritually weak disciples in your midst, what other adjectives could you use to describe a spiritually weak Christian? Now, they may be weak just because they're young in the Lord, just like little babes. They're young, they're weak. But if somebody, if a young man is 24 and he can't do a pull-up, he's weak, right? He has testosterone, should be able to do a pull-up. If he was around a bunch of guys, the guys would turn to that weak young man who's 24 years old and say, dude, you're lame. What if he's in the army? What if he's in the Marines and he couldn't do that? course he could get you killed right and so this idea of being lame or weak and i don't mean it in a pejorative sense i mean it in a sense that you're lame like you can't walk you're lame because you weak you're weak and god doesn't want us to be lame or weak or fragile he wants us to be strong you know the um, roman soldiers paul when he wrote ephesians 
He said, take the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, your loins girt about with truth, and the sword of the spirit, right? And the shield of faith can quench all the fiery darts of the enemy. How do you think Romans went into battle? With their sword in their sheath and their shield on their back? They didn't do that. They had that shield right out there and that sword in front of them. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of movies made with the shield and the sword and using those things. That's what God expects us to do. If you have the sword, you have scripture. You know what the scripture says. You're able to slice, dice, wield, attack, protect all of those things with that sword. If we don't have the sword, if we don't have the word of God, we are lame or we are weak. And so that's why the Lord says in Psalm 119, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you or sin against thee according to the King James Version. So this is what the level paths mean. We should not just be hearers of the word. We should be doers of the word. We should be those who memorize scripture. We should be those who are running the race. We should be those who have our focus on Jesus Christ. We should be those who have the sword of the spirit ready to go and the shield of faith up there running with determination and forethought. All of those things is what Christ is calling us to do as this author speaks to the Hebrews through the writings of this particular letter. In James chapter 1, verse 22, do not merely be or merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. In other words, you'll have level paths for your feet. So we are to be not just hearers, but to be doers as well. And this, of course, is an application point. Self-examination. Are we being doers of the word and not just hearers? Are we actually putting shoe leather to our faith? As a church, we try to do this. As a church, we're involved in reaching out to our local community and to a community that is beyond our locality here in the United States and to a community that is beyond the United States. That's why we do the missionary trips. That's why we're going to Houston. That's why we do the Spirit of Christmas on the Main. Those types of things. All three things are involved. Now, who should be involved in that? Everyone should be involved in those things. Well, how do you... But I can't go to Cambodia. No, you can't go to Cambodia. That's okay. God doesn't call everyone to go because some people just can't go. But you can support them and you can pray for them and you can do whatever you can do here in order to support that effort there. Even just giving to the church because we support missionaries over there. We support an orphanage that is over there. We support a girl's home, girls who are taken out of the sex trade, the sex slavery trade, and put into a home, and they're rehabilitated there. And the, the minds are changed. They're washed by the water of the word, and they're making them into disciples. And so that's how we're supposed to be involved. Whatever we can do, we should do it. And we should not limit ourselves. We should not say, well, I'm only going to do this. How about we say, whatever the Lord wants me to do, that's what I'm going to do. But we put these confines where our focus is on ourselves again. I don't feel like doing that, right? What if you had a nursery worker in the nursery 
and all the babies needed to be changed. And the nursery worker says, I'm not changing them. What are you doing in the nursery? You know, do something else besides nursery if you're not going to change the Bible. Or change the Bible. Change. (laughs) If you're not going to change the diaper. I'm getting ahead of myself in my mind. I'm stumbling over my words here. If you're not going to change the babies, don't be in there. Do something else that can just really motivate you. And, you know, there's some people that look at those babies and they just go, oh, they're so precious. I just, oh, I want to eat you up. You know how that is? I remember my girls, when I'd hold them up and I'd kiss them on the neck, I just want to eat them up. And it's a funny feeling. And then they start laughing. You know, it's a fun thing to do. But we're supposed to be motivated. God puts this motivation in our hearts. We just have to ask him, God, what do you want me to do? And then you get this desire in your heart. That's If we seek after the Lord with all our heart, he gives us the desires of our heart. Not our desires, what we want, but he gives us his desires become our desires. And we carry out what he wants. And it's a great thing. And once you find out what his desires are for you, you go, hallelujah. And you start moving forward. And you get excited about the Christian faith. Okay, Lord, what next? I did that one. What's else? What else is before me here? And that's how we move along from faith to faith, Scripture talks about. And so we want to make sure that we have this motivation within us. And it requires us to die to ourselves. He goes on to say, make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy without holiness. No one will see the Lord. And so we have several things that are listed here that we are to practically be involved in. You know, strengthening our feeble arms, that type of thing, holiness and peace, live at peace with all men. If we're living at peace with all men, it means we're not being argumentative. Now, by nature, I grew up in a family that was argumentative. It it was like two Jewish lawyers with three opinions. And we would go around the table and we would talk about these things. And it was, that was just a way of life for us. But we're not to be argumentative just for argument, argumentative sake. We're not supposed to just want to take the opposite side to be the devil's advocate. If it's in a context of teaching, that's one thing. But some people, they are what, what is known as contrarians. Whatever you say they will say the opposite and they'll hold to that just to get your go, just to be argumentative. And we're not supposed to engage in that. We can just say, okay, I'm done. And they'll want to continue to argue. If we're doing that as Christians, we're doing the wrong thing. Second Timothy chapter two, verse 14 says, keep reminding them of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words it is of no value and only ruins those who listen. In Proverbs fifteen eighteen, living at peace with all men, it says a hot-tempered man stirs up dissension, but a patient man calms a quarrel. In Proverbs 20, verse 3, it is to a man's honor to avoid strife, but every fool is quick to quarrel. And so as Christians, we're to live as in peaceful states with those who are around us. And then God has called us to holiness, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. And 1 Thessalonians 4, 7 says, For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, a disciple of Jesus Christ, you know that this is tough. You want to be holy, but we live in a world that is not 
and we're constantly bombarded and we have a tendency to water down what God says is holy where we will take our freedoms to an extreme and God doesn't want us to do that if God lets us know that we should cut something out of our lives because it is unholy we should follow through with that verse 15 see to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many and so no one misses the grace of God in other words there were probably people in this fellowship who this letter is written to that they are judging others and not extending grace now you know how this goes justice is getting exactly what you deserve right mercy is not getting what you do deserve and grace is getting what you don't deserve you follow that? I know it can be a little confusing. And so you're supposed to give something to somebody that they don't deserve. These people apparently were not doing that. They were missing the grace of God. There was somebody or several people inside the fellowship that had done things that had caused harm and people were refusing to extend to them grace. Grace is unmerited favor. You don't deserve this, but... I'm going to do this anyhow. But you don't even have to say, you don't deserve this. You know why? When you're pointing the finger, how many fingers are pointing back at me? Three. I'm probably three times as guilty as the one I'm pointing the finger at. And so that's where the grace of God comes in. Do not miss the grace of God. And that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. If somebody is bitter, do you know it? Usually, they'll come to you. Do you know what? What? You you know what gossip is like. Gossip is a tasty morsel. Now, I've described this before. I used to have this friend that was up the street. Their last name was Ham. And he was, his father was from China. And he opened up a Chinese restaurant in Chula Vista, where I grew up. And my parents took us there on occasion and they serve this one little platter, this aluminum little platter that was there. And on top of it were these little beef and teriyaki sauce foil wrapped morsels that you would just want to savor. You opened them up and you put them in your mouth. You just go, oh man, it's a tasty morsel. It just goes down. That's what gossip is like. You get the gossip, you go, no, yes. No, yes, give me some more. You know, you just want some more of that tasty morsel. And somebody with bitterness is going to gossip. They're going to say what they don't like about somebody. They're going to communicate their dissatisfaction with someone, an individual, or a group of people. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, it says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, and brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. So, uh, again, how do you know that somebody is experiencing this bitterness? Blame goes to others. This goes back to the beginning. You're to blame for what I'm going through. You're to blame for my discomfort. When God says, get rid of it. Don't worry about that person. That trial came along just for you to show you you have bitterness. And it's time to get rid of it. And I'm doing this for your good. I hate that person. Ah, the person who says 
He loves God and hates his brother. is a liar, and the truth is not in him. You see how critical it is that we don't let that root of bitterness get installed in our lives? And we're nursing a grudge. You know, I, I can remember when I first became a Christian being offended by somebody in the workplace, and I held that for three years. I can remember just... I'd be out there working. Somebody did something to me in a business level, and I, I was just, I was ticked. I mean, ticked. I would be out there mowing. Just, I'd get the job done in half the time because I was just so mad, just so ticked all the time. And God knew that I was going to go through this particular trial, and so he had him show up in a Fuddruckers and walk up to me. He was right there in front of me. And as soon as I saw him and talked to him, it just left. That's why it's so important that Matthew chapter 25, 5, verse 24 and 5, 23, 24 and 25, that's why it's so important that that is carried out. If you know your brother has something against him, go and talk to them. Go take care of it. Otherwise, you're going to allow or give the potential for a root of bitterness to take place and we're to consider others better than ourselves. That's why we follow through with that. God does not want the bitterness in there whatsoever. You know, the, when these trials come along, it's kind of like sand in an oyster. The oyster gets the sand and goes, this is really irritating. And what happens to that sand is there a secretion made by the oyster that turns it into a pearl. That trial that you're looking at, that sand is meant to be a pearl in your life. And we need to recognize that, that that's what God wants. Not like this. One New Year's Eve, somebody wrote at London's Garrick Club, British dramatist Frederick Longsdale was asked by Seymour Hicks to reconcile with a fellow member. The two had quarreled in the past and never restored their friendship. You must, Hicks said to Longsdale. It is very unkind to be unfriendly at such a time. Go over now and wish him a happy new year. So Longsdale, Lonsdale crossed the room and spoke to his enemy. I wish you a happy new year, but only one. You see that? We're not supposed to operate like that. Then he goes on to say, see that no one is sexually immoral or godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the eldest son. Afterwards, as you know, he wanted to inherit this blessing. He was rejected. He could not bring about, or he could bring about no change of mind, though he sought it sought the blessing with tears. We are at a time where we need to receive communion. I haven't finished this yet. I'm going to be finishing it next time. So, uh, you know, my encouragement at this particular point is we're running the race. And as we run that race, we keep Christ in focus. And we do so with forethought, determination, perseverance, endurance, all of those things, and do it with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And I will continue on this theme coming next week but if now the worship team could come up we're going to play a song and we're going to be passing out the communion and as it's passed out i ask that you would hold on to it so we can all receive uh, the elements together so if you guys would come up and go ahead and pass that out